Well, thank you very much for, for the inter, uh, inter, kind introduction, and thank you very much for the opportunity to come down this morning from New Haven. I saw from the train that there was a uh, bicycle uh, thing going on, and there was a lot of traffic, so um, I was very glad to be on the train. Uh, so anyhow, what I'd like to do uh, today, and as was said uh, next week, is to share with you some thoughts about the Reformation and the Bible. To think about this text as the sacred text of that period of the beginning of the 16th century, known as the Reformation. To think about how the, not only the Bible came to be the foundation of that movement, but the very critical and interesting ways in which that movement engaged itself with the Bible. How did it justify what it was doing? How did it understand what it was doing? How did it understand this text? And the way I'm going to do this is to spend some time today thinking about Martin Luther, I'm going to talk primarily about how Luther understood the Bible as a text, how it should be interpreted, and how it should be translated, because Luther was the great translator of the Bible of the early Reformation, turning it into German, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. And then next week, I'm going to focus more directly on Calvin and broadly the Reformed tradition. And there I'm going to talk a bit about what it means more directly to interpret the Bible and to think directly about questions such as what constitutes the literal interpretation of the Bible. We know that the Reformation was critical of what it saw in the Catholic tradition as allegorical interpretation, and we'll talk about what that means. But yet, as is posed very early on in the Reformation, there is this question of what to do with the difficult passages of this text. And so next week I'm going to talk more about the ways in which the Protestant and in particular Reformed tradition emerges in its culture of biblical interpretation. And I think that will open up a lot of questions that are certainly uh, highly relevant for today. But for this morning, I want to begin really where we have to begin, and that is the years before the Reformation, before Luther 1517, what was marked last year as the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the wall or, or to the door of the church in Wittenberg. I know there's a great debate, did he actually do it or did he not? Uh, I like to stay with a good story. Uh, the truth is probably somebody did it for him, but, uh, but it's still the iconic image of, of Luther and, and the door is, it makes for the best story. It's never particularly interesting if you say, well, perhaps a secretary of his posted it for him <laughs> on the bulletin board. But um, so that, that iconic moment of 1517, of course, marks the beginning of how we think about the Reformation. It, it, and of course, it, will, it leads both to the break of Luther with the Roman Church, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but it also leads to the moment in which this revolution in the church takes place. A new form, I think we can say, of Christianity emerges. One that makes, as Luther does, an extraordinarily bold claim. And that claim being that scripture alone, sola scriptura, is the foundation not only of the church, but any authority within the church. 
Luther, when he stands before the young emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms in 1521, says, this is the moment which is always recorded as here I stand. Again, didn't quite say that, but, it, but he, what he did say is, I, here I am and I will be corrected only insofar as you show me to be, have erred in terms of scripture. In other words, my conscience, as Luther says, is bound to scripture, to the word of God. And nothing, nothing, no human authority can require me to believe otherwise that is than the, what, that which is in the word of God. So from 1517 onwards, Luther makes this extraordinary claim, and we'll come back to this in a few moments, but this extraordinary claim for the authority of the word of God. But one of the questions I want to talk about today is what is the relationship between the word of God and what we have before us, scripture, the Bible, that, for Luther, turns out to be a slightly complicated relationship. And that's something we want to think about today because it has an extraordinary importance for the development of Protestant biblical culture. And Luther is wrestling with that right from the beginning. But as I say, this, we have to backpedal a little bit. Before 1517, um, is it okay if I write on? Yeah. Uh, and the place I want to begin, if this is at all visible, uh, doesn't look very visible even to me, so um, we'll try. That might be a little better. Just make the, the uh, impression here, we want to take the story back one year, 1516. There was a big anniversary uh, of this a couple of years ago, but it's for something that's probably much less well known. In 1516, one of the great learned figures of the Western Church, a Dutchman named Erasmus, produces a Greek edition of the New Testament. Now that doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but it was. It's one of the most iconic moments, the development of the Western Church, certainly an crucial moment for the beginning of the Reformation. Erasmus produces, having learnt Greek, he produces what he thinks is the best possible edition of the New Testament in the original language. Won't go into the details, but essentially what he does is he looks through a variety of manuscripts to find what is the most authentic version of, that, of the New Testament. This is the beginning point of this revolution in terms of the Bible. Erasmus, in producing this Greek New Testament, also then produces in the same volume a Latin translation of the Greek. Well, again, doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but what does that mean? Because, and this is what it means, because the Bible of the medieval church in Latin was what was known as the Vulgate. The Vulgate dated back to the fifth century to the great figure of Jerome, who was said to have translated the Bible into Latin from Hebrew and Greek. So the, the Vulgate Bible, the Latin Bible, was the authoritative Bible in the Western Church. But the problem was 
was that because in the, uh, in the medieval world where Bibles were only produced by scribes writing out the text, scribal transmission, it was perfectly obvious that the Vulgate had become full of errors, Latin that didn't make sense. All sorts of ideas had been added into the Bible, and there were no end of errors. So everybody knew that the Vulgate, this Latin Bible, was deeply problematic. It was a corrupt text. But the problem was, what were you going to do about it? Erasmus begins a movement, and I'll talk about this again uh, next week, begins, uh, it belongs to a movement in, in Northern Europe which starts at the end of the uh, 15th century and blossoms with him as one of its major figures called the Northern Renaissance and of humanism. And that's important to our story because humanism, not in the kind of modern sense of whether one believes in God or not or, or a philosophy of, of human nature, Humanism, in this sense, was the idea of the recovery of ancient learning. What we would refer to as the humanities. No, the study of the humanities. And that meant Greek and Latin literature, philosophy, and history. Why is that important to the story? Well, the idea was that these ancient sources could throw light on and help the recovery of the church and of scripture. And so what Erasmus does is he takes this idea of going back to the sources, back to the ancient sources, to say, I want to find the best possible version of the Greek text, of the New Testament text. I want to find the one that will be the most authentic. Now, he, this is what he attempts to do, as I say, by looking at a variety of manuscripts. It's a complicated story, but we don't need to worry about that. What's more important is that he produces this Greek text based on ancient sources. His Latin translation, which, as I say, he makes from the Greek, is different from the Latin Vulgate that I spoke about. The church immediately condemns Erasmus for this. He's condemned for producing a different Latin translation of the New Testament from that which has been the authority in the church. How dare Erasmus produce his own version of the Bible? But others in the universities and in the church were extraordinarily excited by this development that the revival of classical learning of languages, classical Greek and Latin, and eventually of Hebrew, could lead us to a better version of the biblical text, a purer version is the term they, they would use, a purer version of the biblical text. This is the story in which Luther, to which Luther belongs. This extraordinary 1516 onwards, extraordinary ex discovery that the Bible could be more authentically presented by the study of ancient languages which were now becoming increasingly available. So Erasmus's New Testament of 1516 is a revolutionary document. On the one hand, he produced on the one side of the page, and I'll, I'll produce an image next week for you to see, he produces the Greek, and on the other, he produces his Latin translation. And then there's a third part of this. At the end of this Bible, which is a relatively uh, thick volume, 
uh, he produces copious notes. And these notes uh, reflect on the differences between manuscript readings. They reflect on uh, the problems of the language, but they also reflect on theological interpretations. So Erasmus is saying that on the basis of language, we can show, for instance, that certain doctrines that have been taught in the medieval church don't have any warrant or any foundation in scripture. This is particularly relevant for the Luther story on the question of the sale of indulgences, which was going on in Germany as Luther and is a major part of Luther's protest, but mo most directly on the question of purgatory, which was seen as something that had been added into the biblical text during the Middle Ages and had, once you recovered a more authentic version of the text, had no, had no foundation. So I don't want to stay too long on this, but I want to say that our, our story of the Reformation has to begin in this rather scrawly thing here, in 1516. Uh, 1516, Erasmus, although he never leaves the Catholic Church, um, is in many ways the person who begins this revolution of the Bible that Luther will take to a new stage. Luther, like many of his generation, is completely excited by this development by Erasmus. He, of course, reads Erasmus' uh, uh, New Testament. Luther has very good Greek. Obviously, he has a, an education where he learned Latin from a very young age. He is himself, from 1512, a professor of Bible at a fairly remote university in Wittenberg, a fairly new university. So Luther is sort of off in the wilderness. Uh, uh, Wittenberg was not regarded as a prestigious uh, institution, but there he was, an Augustinian monk who had become a professor of Bible. And from 1512, so before Erasmus' work is produced, uh, uh, Luther is lecturing daily in the university on scripture. He lectures, he does a long series of lectures on the Psalms. He lectures through the Pauline epistles, Romans, which is, which is crucial. And he does these long cycles of biblical lectures, which are transformative for Luther. Luther's work as a professor of Bible in Wittenberg University is what tr is really the making of the man who will emerge as the reformer. It was through teaching the Bible that he began to come to terms with his own spiritual crisis, the crisis which I'm sure you've heard about many times, that as a young man and then as a monk, he could find no relief for his conscience, this sense of torment and of divine judgment, that he could never fulfill the justice of God and stood condemned, and that he was weighed down by that wonderful German word, Anfechtung, which we could call trials or tribulations, spiritual anguish. But it was, as, it was his great mentor who had put him in the position of being a professor of Bible from 1512, as Luther was still a fairly young man, that through lecturing on the Bible, Luther begins to come to some uh, sense of how humans can be justified before God. It's at that moment, as he's doing this, that Erasmus' text appears. 
There's one other, and I'm just going to mention this very briefly, one other event that's going on at this time which really shapes the emergence of the Bible in the Reformation. And that was a huge controversy. And that controversy was surrounded the recovery of Hebrew. The medieval world had almost no, the medieval Christian world had almost no knowledge of Hebrew. Hebrew was uh, not taught in universities. It was almost unknown amongst the theologians, Thomas Aquinas, and any of the great medieval theologians, virtually none of them knew any Hebrew. Hebrew is recovered beginning in the 15th century, so right on the eve of the Reformation. But there's a huge problem because the recovery of the Hebrew language is also closely associated with a strong anti-Semitism, a rejection of the Jews, and that problematic relationship between Christians and Jews. And the medieval world, particularly in the West, but not exclusively in the West, is deeply anti-Semitic. Pogroms have been taking place for hundreds of years. So this was seen, this was seen as this revival of Hebrew learning and the reading of rabbinic sources was seen as undermining the Christian tradition and was deeply suspicious. And Luther is not himself free from this suspicion. As we know, Luther's record on the Jews is not, uh, not good. Um, and, but he, he, uh, he does learn Hebrew. But as Luther is, is professor of, of Bible during this period, 1512, 1517, there is a huge controversy raging about whether it is acceptable for Christians to learn Hebrew, whether Hebrew books should be printing, printed, because this is now the following Gutenberg, the age of printing. So you, on the one hand, you have this great development by Erasmus. On the other hand, you have this huge de debate about the status of Hebrew as a sacred language for Christians. Did it, would it corrupt Christians to study rabbinic writings? Would learning Hebrew lead to what they would refer to as a Judaizing of the Christian faith? All sorts of anxiety here. This is the world that Luther and the Bible emerges out of and I think is, is crucial for, to know what happens next. 1517 happens, the great, the opening of the, of the debate uh, with the Roman church. The issue is indulgences. We don't need to uh, go into that, except so far as it is the moment when Luther begins to come to a crucial theological uh, decision. And that decision arises very much out of his reading of, uh, excuse me, Paul's letter to the Romans. And that is about justification by faith alone. And alone is the crucial word we're going to, to be talking about um, uh, briefly. Luther, in the period following 1517, as he's being... Um, uh, as he's being interrogated by various officials of the, the Catholic Church for his opposition to indulgences, increasingly comes to see that his belief that the Bible alone puts him at serious odds with the church. That if, according to his reading, particularly of the New Testament, scripture alone is authoritative and within the teaching of scripture that just that what a person is justified before God by faith alone these are the ideas that are emerging in these years 1517 to 1520 then what is happening in the church with its hierarchy and authority 
is contrary not only to, to the faith, but is, as Luther will soon identify in 1520, the very face of Antichrist itself. So Luther, the, the, the story emerges that Luther uh, makes the claim that scripture alone can be authoritative and that he will only be persuaded of whether he is right or wrong on the basis of the teaching of scripture. So this is, this is, this is, this is the debate that emerges in the first years of what becomes uh, the Reformation. So the Bible is very much at the heart of this. The question is, where does authority reside in the church? Luther increasingly rejects all the efforts of the Roman church to move against him because he says it has no authority. He will not accept their appeal to church law or to church traditions. He said, I will only be persuaded on the basis of scripture. And on the basis of his reading of scripture, he comes to see that the papacy, not any particular pope, is itself antichrist. So he starts to see himself in this sort of cosmic battle against Antichrist who has arisen in the church. He also increasingly, in this period leading up to around 1520, sees his own role as emerging in that. He begins to see himself no longer simply as a university professor and a member of the Augustinian order, but he starts to see himself in prophetic terms, as an Elijah. He believes and he, he writes about this, one of the things that's different, certainly different between Luther and Calvin is that Luther very much charts his own feelings and thoughts. Calvin is very reticent about doing that. But Luther says that he believes that God in this crucial moment has bestowed upon him a particular office, the office of prophet. And that's really important for understanding what happens in the early Reformation with regard to the Bible. Luther always says, this is not about me personally. I personally have no great authority uh, in, in the church and in this unfolding moment when God's word is being restored. But I am called to serve as a prophet. So there's a huge amount happening in this period uh, around 1520. Luther's uh, battle with the church has become a national story, largely through the printing press. His works are flooding across Germany. He's writing in, he's writing in German. He's, tur he's turning the whole debate into one into a la in the language that the people can understand. He's becoming a celebrity, vilified, but for by many praised as a hero. Uh, the whole, it, it becomes the first sort of public relations battle of the printing age. Luther against the church, and Luther turns out to be a master of the printing press. He knows how that works, he understands the economies of it, he knows how effectively to reach his audiences through the kind of the sort of writing that he does. He's an extraordinarily effective writer. And he wins, in many ways, that propaganda battle against the Catholic Church. The Catholics largely respond in Latin. They see this as a matter of institutional reform and discipline, whereas Luther appeals to the people. So where does the Bible fit into this story? The Bible fits in with, in 1522, Luther takes Erasmus's New Testament and translates it into German. 
He does it while he's being held captive. Well, captive, what was it, captive? He was at the, at the Wartburg where he'd been kidnapped, sort of kidnapped. He was in hiding after the Diet of Worms in 1521. And he, in 11 weeks, he claims he translated Erasmus's New Testament into German. But it wasn't just into any German. It was into what Luther saw as the German of the people, the language that people spoke. It was that the word of God should be accessible, as he says, to the mother with her child, to the craftsman in the street. It should be spoken in the homes. That the word of God was not something that belonged to the, to the priests alone. It did not belong only in Latin to the ecclesiastical officials, but it was the word of God for every Christian. And this flowed from his central idea that, that Christians are not justified by the works of the church, not by the sacraments, not by any authority, but only justified through faith alone. And that becomes the major idea that shapes both his theology and the place of the Bible uh, within it. And the, the moment in the 15, this 1522 translation of the New Testament, uh, which is, is crucial, is that passage, and I've just opened it here, from Romans 3, uh, 28. It would have been good if I'd brought my glasses, but um, where we, where he's for, Romans 3, 28, for he's, where it says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What Luther did in his 1522 translation was to add the word faith alone. That moment, oh, thanks very much, uh, that moment made that his interpretation of the Bible absolutely the center of his most uh, prominent theological idea. That idea that by faith alone we are justified. Now, this is a complicated story here. His opponent said, you know, you're adding that word alone. You're changing scripture. Luther argued that he was not, that, it, what the, that the Greek original was consistent with what he put in German. There's actually a long tradition which said uh, that Luther was right. He was not as revolutionary on this point as, as some have said. But what Luther also does, and this is where I, I, I just want to take it so far because I want to have time for us to, to have some conversation. What Luther does, I think, really out of this is pose the crucial question that I mentioned at the beginning. This text of the Bible, he translates it into German, it's printed, it becomes wildly popular. He argues that everyone should have access to the word of God, not just the priests. It should be in their own language. The hope is that, you know, that every, every Christian should encounter for his or him or herself the word of God directly, unmediated by the priests. Therefore, the word of God, scripture has to be available to everyone. So he says this. But it raises a question, which it goes to the heart, and we'll talk about this again next week, goes to the heart of the Reformation itself. When we talk about the word of God, is that the same as talking about the text that we have in front of us? And Luther says, Luther complicates that story slightly and, and, and somewhat controversially. Luther says that the heart of the gospel the heart of the gospel is our justification. Justification by faith alone. That, that he says, is the, is the absolute heart 
of this, that God in Jesus Christ reconciled us to him through the gift of grace. It is by that grace we are justified, and we live in that through faith alone. Luther says this is the heart of the gospel, but that really shapes the way in which he looks at this, the, 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 the scripture itself, the Bible itself. Luther, when he produces his uh, uh, German New Testament in 1522, actually says in his preface that there's a kind of hierarchy of books within the, within the, within the Bible. All, of course, reveal the word of God but not equally. He says, and he's particularly uh, fond of the, not just the synoptics, but of the Gospel of John, but also he's very uh, uh, attached to the Pauline letters. Romans has played a crucial role in this. He says it, it is in the Gospels and in Paul's letters that the essence of the scripture, of the word, is most clearly revealed to us. Therefore, that those are the books that we should most treasure. Others, and some of you will know famously, he says, others are less clear about this, and so therefore they're, and he doesn't want to say they're not as important, but he does say that they have a, a, a sort of lesser significance, and I just want to uh, read to you a passage that he writes from his preface, and then I'm going to uh, draw this, my remarks to a close. He says, the task of the true apostle is that he preach about Christ's suffering, resurrection, and office, and lay the foundation of this faith. As Christ himself says in John 18, you shall bear witness of me. And all genuine holy books agree in this respect, that they all preach Christ and treat of him. Moreover, one applies the true touchstone in judging all books. If one sees whether they treat of Christ or not, since all scripture shows forth Christ, Romans 3, and Paul wishes to know nothing save Christ, 1 Corinthians 2. That which does not teach Christ is not apostolic, even if Paul or Peter is the teacher. Again, that which preaches Christ is apostolic, uh, even if it comes from the mouth of Judas, Pilate, and Herod. So what he's saying, he introduces a question which I think you know, we can talk about, but becomes a major part of Reformation culture. What is the relationship between the word, we speak about the word of God, and the text of scripture itself? Luther introduces this idea that some books of scripture, and in particular in his mind, uh, James, uh, the epistle of Hebrews, and uh, the Old Testament book of Esther were much less uh, I mean, J James, he famously calls the epistle of straw because he says it teaches, it teaches good works. Um, but he introduces this hierarchy of, of some books which are more clearly re re revealing of Christ than others. So in his 1522 Bible, those books which he valued less, such as Hebrews, James, and Esther, he puts to the very end of his Bible. Um, so, so this, but this proves to be you know, a question which we're going to talk about again next week is, is what is the relationship for Protestants between the word and scripture, which raises questions about uh, what about the human authors of scripture? What about the historical circumstances in which they live? These were all issues that the reformers were deeply concerned about, very much the legacy of Erasmus.
So Luther, Luther's Bible becomes an iconic uh, uh, milestone of the, of the Reformation. The, the Bible in German becomes the model for almost all other translations. The first translation into English by William Tyndall, uh, following by translations into French. The Luther Bible becomes the model of how one should translate. But his understanding of what the Bible is as a text is something that launches a question, a debate that will shape much of the Reformation. I want to talk about that next week, but before uh, we get there, I, I want to be sort of mindful of some time for discussion. So I'll leave it there.